federal contractors should pay close attention to a government acquisition website for any banned products and services. That's because a new contracting rule puts some teeth behind the Federal Acquisition Security Council's power to remove items from government supply chains. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, tell us about this new rule and what it covers and when it becomes effective. It was published by the Defense Department, the General Services Administration, and NASA last week as an interim rule. So this is a new federal acquisition regulation that will put some power behind what the Federal Acquisition Security Council can do to get risky products out of federal supply chains. It will require contractors to monitor SAM.gov, that's the big acquisition website for the government, to see if the FASC has issued any removal or exclusion orders. Removal orders are something that's already in federal networks that they want ripped out. Exclusion orders would be on the front end of a procurement and basically say, don't include this in what you're delivering to the government. These new acquisition regulations will go into effect as an interim rule on December 4th until something changes. They'll be included in all new solicitations and then contracting officers will work in in those months afterward to include the new regulations in contracts that already exist through changes. So these are coming pretty fast. And you mentioned the Federal Acquisition Security Council. How do they move forward and operationalize all of this? It was created by the Secure Technology Act of 2018. So it's a relatively new thing within government. Uh, The council is chaired by the Federal Chief Information Security Officer and it includes representatives from the General Services Administration, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Defense Department, and a couple other agencies. So, so some big buying agencies there and national security relevant agencies there, too, because this is all about potentially removing things that have a national security concern. Chris DeRussia is the federal CISO. I caught up a little bit with him about the FASC and and how they plan to move forward. Let's just be blunt about what we're talking about. We're talking about taking companies potentially off of the ability to bid for federal contracts and ripping technology out of current environments, potentially, right? That is is why that is such a big, weighty authority. And there's a lot of information here around how is that going to work? Well, the question is, what products and services is this group known as FASC going to focus on? I mean, we all know about the Huawei and ZTE, the Chinese telecommunications switcher gear companies, long been banned from federal networks, and there was a ripout order, I think, a couple of years ago. What else is going on that they're trying to get after? Well, right now, it's really unclear what specifically the council plans on banning. I asked Russia that explicitly. He said he can't provide a whole lot of comment on that right now. He says that the FASC is just trying to work on standing up its capacity and resources to be able to handle potential removal or exclusion orders in the future, which is, as he said, a pretty big deal when you're talking about how big the federal government supply chain is. We can look to those past bans that both the executive branch and Congress have passed. There was the Kaspersky ban, the Russian cybersecurity firm that was banned back in 2017. As you mentioned, there was the Huawei ZTE ban that was passed by Congress in 2019. That also included some Chinese surveillance technology suppliers as well as five total Chinese firms that were included in that ban. More recently, the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act bans agencies from doing businesses with companies that rely on some Chinese semiconductor manufacturers. So semiconductors are a concern. So there's a lot of concerns swirling around foreign-made 
components that go into information technology, but what exactly it's going to be going forward, we we can't really say for sure. And is there a FASC process for all of this? I mean, earlier we had executive orders, there were binding operational directives. I think that's what happened in the case of the Kaspersky lab. How do they plan to do this with respect to communication and process? Well, the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is the internal information sharing agency for the FASC. So we can expect them to kind of take FASC decisions and recommendations and, and share them among federal agencies. Externally, as we mentioned at the top, contractors are just going to see this pop up on SAM.gov. That's as far as we know about how they're going to communicate about these things externally. I talked to several federal contracting experts. They say this could be the end of Congress kind of getting involved in banning companies like with the Huawei ban. That was a huge deal in Congress when that happened. It puts some more deliberative process behind this in the executive branch. But we see things in Congress kind of play out in the open, whereas with the FASC process, it's going to be a little more opaque. I spoke with Tracy Howard, who is a federal contracting attorney at Wiley Wren. We don't know, are they going to put out one order every couple of years, or are they going to come out with 10 every three or four months? Their process is a little bit of a black box, so we don't really know what they might be considering and won't until an order comes out. And somehow that all has to get translated into contracts because if it's a FAR rule, that means it's going to have to be in contracts and contracting officers are going to have new clauses to add to contracts. That's the thing about this new rule is that it essentially creates a blanket clause in contracts that contractors have to monitor SAM.gov to see whether something has been banned. Right. Uh, So contracting officers won't necessarily have to go in and say this firm is now banned in each and every single contract. It really puts the onus on contractors going Right, forward. but that clause has to be in there, and so it's going to have to get into contract writing systems and the whole the rest of it. Well, right. for those contracts that have to do with information technology that have that component to them. And what about how the FASC is going to evaluate whether to ban something? Because all of these products come with lobbyists. Yeah, we do know a little bit about their process. Uh, they they issued a regulation back in 2021 kind of laying out their internal processes, and they have something called relevant factors when it comes to evaluating potential risky sources here that they want to either exclude or remove from federal systems. Some of those factors include things like the functionality and features of the covered source, whether it's you know accessing data and information systems within federal networks. Of course, there's the you know foreign uh, concern, foreign ownership concern that play, plays a role here, and whether there could be something that is just of concern because it's controlled by a foreign entity in a country that isn't so friendly to the United States. And then there's also just certain standards that are put out by NIST. They'll actually advise the FASC because they're a member of it on just good security standards. So there's a few basic factors there. But again, we don't know specifically what they're looking at at this point. Anything else contractors should be looking for here then? Yeah. In addition to monitoring SAM.gov, once this becomes effective, the services and products that are going to be covered by these orders are also covered in the performance of a contract. So it's not just delivery, it's maybe what you're using to carry out a contract, whether it's you know an IT system or whatever. And that's a little bit more vague than what exactly you're delivering to the government. Howard pointed that out to me. Contractors need to be you know, paying attention to what they're actually using as far as back office type functions as well, potentially. And then 
companies need to be kind of on the ball and understanding their obligations here because as Howard pointed out, not complying with these directives could lead to breach of contract or even potential false claims act allegations. So you might want to have some dedicated supply chain security personnel going forward. That's another bit of advice from uh, the contracting attorney, Tracy Howard. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.